Very pleasant good morning to each one of you. What a beautiful day God has created for us to enjoy in this life, to come together as His people, to honor Him as we have done, as we have opened our hearts and our voices this morning in song and in prayer, as we have gathered around the table of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to think for a few moments about the uh, eternal love that God has shown to us in His Son and to have some time to spend together in His Word. It certainly is a blessing that God has given to us to come together and to think about Him and to see how we can encourage one another and stir one another up to love and to good works. Before we get into our lesson this morning, just uh, to let you know a little bit of the schedule for this month. Obviously, I am here today, and Brother uh, Gavin and Sister Elaine are in Mountain View, where Brother Gavin is preaching uh, this morning, and is glad that he has an opportunity to do that. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will be looking back at our somewhat of a series. I know we this will only be our third lesson in this series this year, thinking about major lessons from minor prophets, and Lord willing, uh, Gavin and I will be looking at uh, the prophet Malachi we're at the very end of our Old Testaments. And so if you want to be reading that short book, it's a very quick, uh, maybe 12 to 14 minute read, how, depending upon how fast or slow you read. Uh, you can read that through several times this week and be prepared for our lessons on Sunday. As If you've been here for the two that we've done so far, Gavin in the assembly period is going to kind of give us an overview of that particular book. Uh, maybe pick out some themes that are running through that book and then spend some time reading that book. And then hopefully in the worship hour, I will try to pick out a very practical lesson from uh, the prophet Malachi that will help us in our walk with Jesus Christ. On the third Sunday, uh, Lord willing, my family and I will be gone visiting family uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday. And Brother Gavin will be preaching at both uh, services and then the following Sunday, the last Sunday of this month, we're going to swap, and Gavin and Elaine are going to visit, I think, his family in Tennessee that Sunday, and I will be here. Uh, so that maybe gives you something to look forward to. I know that a number of you will probably be traveling, not only this month, but next month, and so we may not get to see each other as much as we normally do, uh, but let's keep each other on our minds and in our hearts and see how we can be of service to one another in the body of Christ. On Saturday, February 25th, 2006, Anna and I stood before an audience of about 150 people, and we said those two words that those of you who are married say to one another on that occasion, we said, I do, to each other. And little did we know that those two very small words would be two very significant words and what they would mean in the years to come. Because over the last 17 plus years, we have experienced both good days and bad days. We have experienced births of our own children and of those that we love. We have experienced deaths among those that we love. We have enjoyed many days of good health together, but we have also enjoyed and endured days of sickness. We have experienced joys and sorrows in life. We have made a number of good memories but we have also shared many of life's struggles. But through all of that, we as a husband and wife, as a couple, have faced life together. We have done it together. 
Although we who are married in this audience this morning, we may not remember the exact words that we said as we made our vows to God and to each other. For those of you that have been married much longer than I have, you may or may not remember those words. It is somewhat of a blessing, but maybe also not that we have our marriage on DVD and those in the younger crowd are saying, what is a DVD? <laughs> Everything's streamed these days. But we have a record of that. And our kids, especially when they were a lot younger, they love to watch mom and dad's wedding ceremony. I don't know exactly why. But even if we don't remember the exact words that we said to God and to one another on that occasion, if our marriage has existed for any length of time, we know better now today than we did then just what those vows look like in real life. We know what we were promising to one another. We have experienced life together. And so this morning, whatever your marital status is, as many of us are married, but there are a number in this audience that are not married and have never been married. But I want all of us to think about this morning three vows for marriage. Because we know that marriage is under attack in our time. And not just in our time, but marriage has been under attack almost since the beginning of time. As we read so early on, we don't know, at least I don't know how much time has passed between Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth and Genesis chapter 3 as the, gar the serpent comes into the garden and tempts Eve and Adam and they sin against God. I don't know how much time has elapsed there, but at least very early on in the biblical record, Satan has been attacking our homes, our families, our marriages. And certainly in our time, and again, not just unique to our time, this has been a problem for people for generations that he has attacked the vows that we have made to one another and to God about our marriage. And he has tried to convince us that those vows really don't mean anything, that those were just words that we said at some time back in the distant past, and they don't really have any relevance or meaning to my life and to my marriage today. And we can chunk those vows whenever we want. But those vows mean something. And I want us to think this morning about some vows for marriage. The first vow that I want us to consider is the vow of companionship. It is the idea, as I have here on the screen, that we need each other as husband and wife. Very early on in Scripture, of course, we learn about marriage, don't we? We learn about a major purpose, a reason that God created marriage, and that is that that I have here on the screen. It is that of companionship. It is not just being friends with one another, but it is a marriage God intends for this relationship that husband and wife, that there will be a close, intimate bond between a man and woman. And it is an intimate bond. It is a close bond. It is a companionship, a fellowship, if you will, that is like no other earthly human relationship. There is no other relationship that we can compare this relationship of marriage too. We may have good friends, we may have close friends, we may have best friends in our life, but it is not the same relationship that we have as husband and wife. And so I want to take our minds back to the passage where our brother Kerry began our assembly this morning to Genesis chapter 2 once again and read or reread rather just verses 18 through 23 at this particular point. Genesis 2 beginning at verse 18. 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took some of his, one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." Before God made man, of course, we know this account, I think many of us do very well. But before he made uh, woman, rather, he knew that man needed a being like himself. But I think the whole point, at least I get out of this text here, is that not that God didn't know this, that Adam needed someone who was like himself, someone who would be compatible with himself, someone with whom he could interact and relate to, and that person could relate to him. But I think maybe the whole point of the writer telling us about this particular thing happening is that God wanted Adam to realize that he needed someone who would be like himself. And so God brought, of course, every land and sky animal before Adam, every animal that he had made, and he paraded them before the man. But among all them all, of course, the writer tells us there was not one, even not one among all the animals of the land and sky that Adam looked at that was even close uh, was even uh, found to be his close companion. And so in the most intimate way possible, God is making woman from one of man's ribs, surely suggesting that God intended for man and woman, husband and wife, to be close to one another, to be as close to one another as is humanly possible, to walk side by side with one another through life, for one not to run ahead of the other, not one not to fall behind or lag behind, one not to go off in this direction and the other to go off in that direction as so often is the case, it seems, in marriages today. But for us to be as close to one another as possible to walk step by step through life with one another. And because God made woman from man, man now, Adam, saw his need for companionship fulfilled. And he recognized, I believe, his unique bond with woman. Of course, there wasn't any other human person that was living on earth at this time. But he recognized this unique bond that he has with this woman that God has created. And he says here these famous words at the end of the chapter at verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Yes, Adam and Eve, in one sense, were uniquely different. They were unique individuals that God had created. But in another way, they were very much alike. Adam needed Eve. But Eve also needed Adam. And here in marriage, they found true companions, true companions for life. And so it remains for us today, brothers and sisters. While we who are married should not expect our spouse to perfectly meet every need that God has given to us. And if that is our expectation that our spouse, even for those of you in the audience that are not married, but you desire to be married someday, if that is your expectation of finding 
a man or a woman who's going to meet your every need, who's going to fulfill your every dream and desire, and they're going to fulfill it just like that at the time that you want it fulfilled. Your expectations are wrong. And so it's not the case that we're going to find a person who is going to satisfy every need that we have perfectly. But saying that, we should also realize that we do very much need one another and that God intends for us to view each other and to treat each other as our closest companion. I think about the words we began here at the beginning of Scripture, but go to the very end of the Old Testament as is arranged for us in the book of Malachi. As Malachi talks here uh, about uh, what they have done, uh, we know verse 16, I think many of us do well, the saying of God there that he hates divorce and that we should not deal treacherously with the wife of our youth. But notice what he says back in verse 14. He says, yet you say that his own people, the Israelites, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. Listen, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. It's not just the fact that, really not even the fact, I don't think that we've entered into some kind of business transaction with this other person that we call our husband or wife. It's not that we have entered into a contract with them that if they don't meet their end of the bargain, then we can get out of it and we can change the stipulations as time goes on. And it's not that kind of an idea at all. It is as Malachi, as God is saying here to his own people of old, that she, your wife, and the same goes for a husband, that your spouse is your companion and your wife, your husband, by covenant. You have entered into an agreement, a covenant with one another, just as God had entered into a covenant or an agreement with his own people, and they had entered into that with God. So he says the same thing is true of your marriage, that you are in covenant relationship with one another, and you are to be companions to one another. Married folks, I think Satan, our enemy, is, is doing all that he can to pull us away from each other in our marriages. And God is doing all that he can to bring us together, to bind us more closely to one another. But it can be a very, temp, uh, very uh, subtle, I think, temptation that we wrestle with. And many of us do who are married. Maybe it's not our intention but because we don't put some barriers in our life, it ends up that instead of us as husbands and wives being closer and closer and closer together and more intimately connected to one another as time goes on, that we become further and further apart. We drift away from each other. And yes, we may live in the same house. And we sometimes, sometimes we don't even do this, but we may eat the same meals together. But we're drifting further and further apart. And Satan is doing all that he can to pull us apart from each other with separate schedules and maybe separate jobs and different interests that we have in our lives. He is doing all that he can, I think, to brainwash us into thinking that we really don't need each other, that we can find our fulfillment by being self-fulfilled. Yes, we got married, but it wasn't really for the reason of trying to be companions with one another, trying to intimately know another person we're in it for ourselves. However, we need to see God's, his God-given need for one another, and we need to pursue mutual companionship together. And it takes pursuing that, I think, because we live in a hectic world. 
because our schedules are so busy, because we're going in opposite directions for most of the day, most days of our lives, that we have to be very intentional about that. And we have to look for ways that we can become greater and greater and deeper companions with one another. But that's the first vow for marriage is that we need to realize that we need each other. Secondly, there's the vow of loyalty in marriage. This is the idea of saying that I am yours and you are mine. Again, early on in scripture, we also learn that marriage is to be an exclusive relationship. This is not the idea of, I don't know if this, is, this idea is still floating around in our culture. This terminology is still being used. But at least at one time, it was kind of the idea of open marriage. You know, that yes, I'll commit myself to you. We can use that word commit very loosely and lightly, but I'll commit myself to you. Again, as long as you fulfill your end of the bargain, as long as I'm being satisfied and I am pleased and everything's going well from my perspective. But you know, I'm kind of keeping my options open. And if things start going in the direction I don't want them to go, then I'm out of here and, and we get into another relationship. And that's the idea I think a lot of people have that are married. But in the words of God, in the words of Scripture, these two companions, husband and wife, are to be solely committed and solely devoted to one another and to no one else. Going back to the words in Genesis chapter 2, let's read here again verses 24 and 25. Here the writer says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." A man, as well as a woman, he's addressing here, I think, specifically a man leaving his parents behind, but also applies to a woman as well, that we, the two of us, we leave our parents behind. And in marriage, of course, we are joined together. We are bonded together by God. Jesus uses that very terminology when he was asked, you might remember the question by the religious leaders about can we just put our wives away? Can we divorce our wives for any cause at all? And Jesus, of course, unequivocally answers no. But he takes them back to the beginning before he gets to that answer, really addressing that question. And he says, don't you know that, quoting these words here, that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That what God has joined together there in verse six, let not man separate. God's intent is to join us together as husband and wife, to truly become one flesh. And notice that it says here back in the Genesis account at verse 24, for this reason, what he's just stated, because God has seen that man, it was not good for man to be alone because God paraded all the animals before Adam and there wasn't found one that could be his true companion for life. Because God created, took one of his ribs and created woman to be his companion. For all of those reasons, then a man leaves his father and mother and God joins those two individuals together so that they might become one flesh. Going back to where we began our lesson this morning about the vows that we make to one another in marriage, when a man and a woman say, I do to one another, they are committing themselves to God. They are committing themselves to each other and God is joining them. He is binding them. He is, this, this word that's used here really is the idea of gluing them together for life. And so once a man and a woman say those words to each other that I do, I do pledge myself to you. I do accept the responsibilities 
and the pleasures, the joys of marriage. I accept the whole package. Their decision for a life companion is made. Of course, the exception to that would be your spouse dies (laughs) and you decide to make that commitment to someone else. But barring that, your decision for a life companion is made. You're not in the business anymore of comparing your spouse to a handsome movie star or to a gorgeous model. You're not out here playing the field and looking for anyone else to try to fill your needs, whatever those needs might be, but maybe your needs for romance or your needs for sex or your needs for money or your needs for companionship. Your decision has been made. And also when a man and a woman say I do to one another, they not only seek to be satisfied with the spouse that they have chosen, but they are to rejoice. We are to rejoice in our choice of spouse. I want to go once again to the book of Proverbs, this time to chapter 5, because I think the Proverbs writer has something very important that we need to hear, just as people in his day needed to hear. Proverbs chapter 5, let's begin reading there at verse 15. He says, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love, for why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? We are to be people who are loyal to our spouse. We are to be people among all those who are married throughout the world. We who are Christians, we ought to be the people that the world is looking to to say there is a picture of a loyal mate. There is a picture of a committed relationship of marriage. And we in this passage are to be so loyal to our spouse that we're not only just satisfied with our spouse in every way, we're not just satisfied with their body or their mind or their abilities or their personality. But the wise man says here, we are to be exhilarated with them. And that word exhilarated, it's it's translated different words depending upon what version you're using this morning. It is the idea of being captivated We know what that is, right? When you're just kind of fixated on someone or something that you can't take your eyes off that particular person or that particular thing, that they have all of your focus and all of your attention. And the wise man is saying, that's what we ought to be. That's who God has called us to be in our marriage, that we are not just to be satisfied with the choice that we have made, but we are to be captivated by our spouse The New American Standard from which I'm reading this morning has a marginal note that this word literally means to be intoxicated. And we often think about intoxication and we associate it with drinking alcohol, don't we? And we think about that as being a very negative thing with very negative consequences in our life. But the wise man is saying to us, those of us who are married, that's supposed to describe our marriage. That's supposed to describe how we feel and how we treat one another as husband and wife, that we are to be intoxicated. In a sense, we are to be drunk with one another. We are to be captivated by one another. And he says that in opposition to what we just read here at verse 20, the same Hebrew word he uses here. He says, we're to be exhilarated always by her love, 
Verse 20, for why should you, my son, be exhilarated? Why should you be captivated? Why should you be intoxicated and lose all self-control with someone who is an adulteress? Someone who's just trying to pull you apart from your spouse and get you to sin against God. But oftentimes the devil works on us and, and we're exhilarated. We're captivated by someone else that's not our spouse because, hey, they have a greater looking, a better looking body or they have a better mind or their personality appeals to us or whatever it is that attracts us to that particular person. And God, through the wise man, is saying, no. No, we need to be exhilarated with our spouse. Not being loyal to our spouse in every way, sexually, emotionally, relationally, it brings great heartache and great pain and even destruction to our life. If we continue reading here in this passage at verse 21 of Proverbs chapter 5, the wise man goes on to say, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. Isn't this true of all sin? But especially as Satan is trying to get us and get our focus and our attention off of our spouse and onto the world or onto someone else, that he presents it in such a way that is really appealing to us. And he says, yeah, I know your spouse really doesn't have much of a personality, but here's this person over here that, can, that really has a personality. They're just bubbly and joyful. And, you know, he presents it to us as this is a good thing for us. But the wisdom of God in his book says, no, it may look like it's good. And there may be some pleasure. God's not denying that at the beginning. But in the end, it's going to lead to your destruction. And how many people do we know that have experienced heartache and pain and their lives have been totally ruined because they allowed someone else to capture their attention rather than the person that they said, I do too. And so married couples, Satan is trying very hard to bombard us with many alternatives to our spouse that are just readily available for us today. And even in our day and time, as I talked several months ago about pornography, it doesn't have to be an actual live person that is there in your presence. It can be someone who appears on a screen, some, some object, I guess I'll call it, that's not even a person that's just digitally created. It's readily available. But here is the wisdom of God. Let us be people who are pursuing mutual loyalty together. And then the third and final vow for our marriage that we want to think about this morning is spirituality. And this is the idea that we as husbands and wives, that we love God first. God obviously is the one who has created marriage. And if we desire a marriage that's going to honor him and please him, we must allow him to build our marriage as that family psalm begins there in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, we're, we're laboring in vain. We're, we're just engaged in the exercise of futility. And what that means is that God must be at the very center of our marriage. He must be the one who has joined us together, but he joins us together in every way. And he continues to join us more and more together and draw us closer and closer to one another as time goes on. But our focus, even as we talked in the first two points, really about our focus being on ourselves as husbands and wives, really our focus in marriage needs to be on God. 
And we both need to love him first and foremost. I tell you what, when spouses are both doing that, we will then find that loving one another will not be so hard. It will follow along. I'm not going to take the time to read this text. I think most of us are very familiar with it. But Ephesians chapter 5, just that beautiful picture there that Paul is painting of the relationship, the marriage, if you will, between Christ and the church. But he uses the marriage relationship between us as people, husbands and wives, and a wife's generally gladly submitting herself to her husband's leadership and a husband willingly and gladly loving his wife and sacrificially giving himself for her. And that is the picture that is painted here that in all of that, we are showing that we are loving God first, that we realize that God, yes, has made us as unique people, that I'm a man and not a woman and my spouse is, if she is a wife, she is a woman and not a man, that we are unique. But in that, God has brought us together in marriage and he has given us different work to do and he wants us to work together on that. But we're showing that we love God first. The companion text there in Colossians chapter three, just a very condensed version, of course, of what we have in Ephesians chapter five, that women are, again, wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives. There is to be this mutual respect and this mutual love for one another in marriage. But here's the point of both, both of those passages that I want to bring out to you this morning. When the first love of both husband and wife is the Lord himself, then his will and his desire and his purpose is going to reign supreme in our relationship of marriage. We will interact with one another in those two passages. It uses this kind of language. We will interact with one another as husbands and wives in marriage as to the Lord. Just like the Lord, Jesus Christ, is the one that we are married to. He is the other partner in that relationship, the other side of that relationship and that will cause us to be more like him, that we will reflect this beautiful relationship of Christ and the church in our marriage. Again, there will be mutual love that's flowing. There will be mutual submission. There will be mutual respect and mutual selflessness and mutual sacrifice and mutual service to one another. But that's only possible when we put God first in our marriage and when we love God first. And in my estimation, this is probably why we have so much trouble with marriages in our culture today because for the most part, we've kind of thrown God out. And we said, I don't want God to be in our schools. I don't want God to be in our places of government. I don't want God to be anywhere in our thinking or our society. And so we've thrown God out of marriage. And once we do that, we see the results all around us today. I do want to read here from 1 Peter chapter 3 as Peter, of course, has given some instructions to wives, especially to have unbelieving husbands about how they can win them to Christ just by their conduct and their example. But notice he gives some instructions here to husbands as well. In verse 7, 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, he says, You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker vessels since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. When both husband and wife are Christians, when we have both committed ourselves first and foremost to Jesus Christ, when we have first, uh, are first the companion, if you will, as we spoke of in terms this morning, of Jesus Christ, and we are showing loyalty to him, we're not competing with one another as people who out, are out there in the world who don't have God at the center of their marriage may be doing. We're not trying as husbands and wives to one-up each other all the time. We are not putting each other down. 
No, we are seeing each other in these terms that Peter uses here in this verse. We're seeing each other as fellow heirs of the grace of life. We are treating each other as fellow heirs of the grace of life. We are showing honor to one another. Because we realize that both of us, husbands and wives, we have both been saved by the rich and abundant mercy and grace of God. And when we do this, we're showing a great example to our world, again, of what God intends for marriage to be. But we're also pleasing God because we are submitting ourselves, both of us, in marriage to God's will for this most precious of relationships. We are pleasing Him. And Peter says something. I know he says this to husbands specifically, but I think the same thing can be said to wives. If we don't honor each other and we don't see each other as fellow heirs of the grace of life, that our prayers are going to be hindered. (laughs) That as we spoke of in the first hour this morning, God cares about our finances. But listen to me, and I know we know this, but we need to be reminded, at least I do, (laughs) that God cares about our marriages as well. And so married people, again, Satan, our enemy, is working very hard to get us to love self or even to love each other first. But God's will in marriage is that we both love him first. And so let's both help each other to pursue him. Let's both help each other as husbands and wives to pursue God. Well, regardless of whether we remember the exact words of our vows to God and to our spouse or not, the day that we said, I do, we who are married made some vows to each other on that particular day. We made some promises to one another. How are we doing in that? Are we living our vows? If we vowed to forsake all others and cling only to this person that we have chosen and they have chosen us, are we truly living that? Or is our mind and our eye wandering somewhere else? If we vow to be with this person through sickness and in health, through good times and bad, are we really sticking to that vow? And I know that can be very tough. I mean, I haven't experienced, we haven't, Anna and I haven't experienced, thankfully to this point in our life, in our marriage, the the number of health issues that some of you have in your marriage and they're even experiencing now. But that's when the true test may come. It's easy to fulfill our vows when everything is going great. But when there are difficulties in our marriage, that's when our loyalty is really put to the test. Are you living those vows? Are you growing in those vows? Is it the case that maybe you and your spouse need to revisit those vows and not just read those words again together, but to really think about what you promised to God and to one another when you said, I do. The greatest marriage that you could ever enter into is the one between Christ and the church. And you can live the rest of your life as a faithful servant of God, as a single person. And maybe we'll speak about that at some point. But Christ laid down his life. He is referred to in scripture as the bride. He he wants us to be his church. He's the bridegroom and we're the bride. What about you this morning? Do you need to enter into that relationship? If so, the song we're about to sing, I hope that you will think about those thoughts. I hope that you will act on them. I hope that you will decide that today is the day that you want to become a Christian. 
Today is the day that you want to be a close companion of God, that you want to walk with Jesus Christ and you want him to walk with you for the rest of your life. Today is the day that you're saying, I'm, I'm done with everybody else. I'm done with myself. I'm done with sin. I'm done with the world. And I'm only going to be committed to following Jesus. And if you're ready to do that this morning, we stand ready to help you. If you can come before this assembly, confess your faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, repenting of your sins, you can be baptized into Christ and you can be joined to him. If you've made that commitment to him at some point in the past, but you're your, your commitment is kind of waning, it's lagging, and you feel like you're drifting away. If you need the prayers and the help and the encouragement of your brethren to get back on the right path, we'll certainly be happy to pray with you and for you this morning. However we can help you, let us know. Respond as we stand and as we sing.